Welcome to Modern Family Matters, a podcast hosted by Steve Altitian, our Director of Client Partnerships here at Lander Home Family Law. We are devoted to exploring topics within the realm of family law that matter most to you. Our discussions will cover a wide range of both legal and personal issues that encompass family law matters. We strongly believe that life events such as marriages, divorces, remarriages, births, adoptions, children growing up, growing older, illnesses, and deaths do not dissolve a family. Rather, they provide the opportunity to reconfigure and strengthen family dynamics in healthy and positive ways. With expertise from qualified attorneys and professional guests, we hope that our podcast will help provide answers, clarity, and guidance towards a better tomorrow for you and your family. Without further ado, your host, Steve Altitian. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Family Matters. I'm Steve Altitian with Lander Home Family Law. And today I'm here with Eve Miller, the Honorable Circuit Court Judge from Clackamas County. Eve, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I would be happy to. I think it helps with giving some context as to um, how I approach uh, the mediation work that I do. I began as a lawyer in 1981. I actually worked a little bit while I was in law school doing some family law work with either a legal clinic or a private law firm. And from there, I decided that I kind of wanted to emphasize family law. I did have a general civil practice where I was in court and doing the kind of work uh, most lawyers do in private practice. And I did that for a total of 16 years. So from 1981 to 1997. Around 1990, the uh, presiding judge in Clackamas County asked me to start a program where I was doing some judge work for them. It's called Pro Tem Judging. And I did that for seven years. And around uh, between 1990 and 97, around 1997, I put my name in and was appointed to a full-time circuit court position by Governor Kitzhaber. So from there, I was uh, on the bench in Clackamas County full-time. That's what I did, as opposed to the private practice of law or pro tem judging. And I spent a good bit of that time doing family law, but I did a lot of other cases as well. And I have quite a big background in civil work, but I did a lot of criminal as a judge. So at that point, we developed programs, and I had become interested in mediation as far back as the late 80s when it was sort of coming on, I found that when people are able to resolve their own disputes in mediation and settlement conferences, whether it's with a judge or the attorneys negotiating, that the outcome was a much more positive one. And so that was the uh, direction I started to head even as a judge. And we did a, a lot of settlement conferences. And to this day, I'm still doing them for the courts. I did retire in 2017 from the bench, and as a result of that, it gave me the opportunity to start working and focusing on a private practice of mediation. I do do some other types of dispute resolutions, such as arbitration and reference judging, but today we're going to focus on mediation, so I'll focus my attention on that. And uh, the last thing I would say is that I still do judicial settlement conferences and work for the state of Oregon, kind of filling in here and there and making um, it easier for parties to get their cases settled. 
So I'll touch upon a little bit of that as I go through and talk about mediation in this context, but they kind of uh, either work together or side by side. Well, thank you. Let's talk about a little bit of their beginning, just kind of what family law mediation is, what it encompasses. So I have been trained as a mediator, and I would say that for the most part, when you find uh, retired judges such as me doing um, family law mediation, we are sort of doing a hybrid. We do what's called evaluative mediation, and that means that we kind of put our two cents in. A lot of uh, mediators are trained and should be trained to be not only a neutral but to try not to push um, a party in one, one way or another. We're there to sort of identify the risk of going to trial. So oftentimes when I'm working with parties, I'll say, well, if you go to trial, and they say, well, I don't want to go to trial. I understand that, but we do want to sort of focus on the risk of going to trial. And as a mediator, I try to get both sides to appreciate that risk I will, though, when called upon, and most of the time I am hired and called upon, to put my two cents in. And so I might say, well, it appears to me that your chances are, you know, this or that, and that you may uh, be better off um, accepting the proposal that's being given to you. Other times, you know, people are always um, free, and I encourage people not to feel boxed in by the mediator or by the process. Everybody has the right to go to trial. There are some disputes sometimes that really require a judge. And oftentimes I will tell you, I could probably decide the case much quicker than you folks can do mediating. That doesn't mean that my decision would be as good as yours. And so that's why, you know, we focus our attention uh, on trying to get you folks to decide and parents in particular, but all people's uh, people who are in uh, disputes. Uh, feel better when they have some ownership and control over the outcome. Well, that makes complete sense. So can you resolve all of the issues in a family law mediation trial? Sometimes I even go above and beyond. <laughs> the legal issues are are the parts that are before me. And when I tackle them, I tackle them as a problem solver and somebody who wants to get the job done. I'm very goal-oriented. I've been told I'm very tenacious. I'm very patient. Having said that, uh, there are times when people will have adult children that they're not uh, having a relationship with. And it's broken down over the course of time or maybe it's situational to the divorce that's going on with their other parent. And so sometimes I actually intervene a little bit in things that go a little bit above and beyond, but we certainly can tackle every legal issue. Whether you settle every issue, you can still benefit from mediation by paring down the issues, which saves uh, time and money and, and some anguish of going to court. And sometimes you can get more focused and people oftentimes will then um, have a smoother path to finding their way to um, the end with maybe it wouldn't happen in mediation itself, but as they move along with their uh, negotiations. So let's say someone wants to start mediation or is thinking about starting mediation. How do they start? What's kind of the process to get started in, in getting a mediation set? 
Well, first of all, you want to select the process that you want. And there are, like I said, perhaps some differences in personalities among the various mediation places or parties that mediate. Um, The practitioners can be retired judges. They could be lawyers. Some of them can come from more of a psychology or mental health, you know, MSW type of background. When it comes to mediating, you want it to be a good fit. Um, I used to tell people when I was practicing law that I had to have a good fit with my client and vice versa. If you have confidence in the person who's sort of navigating things and giving um, sort of perspectives, that makes it a lot easier to listen and, and to appreciate their perspective. So picking the right type of mediator is maybe important. Sometimes talking to people, um, and most I would imagine would give you some time on the phone and just uh, make sure this is the right process. I've talked to people on the phone where there's two or three siblings arguing over an estate. Two of them seem like it's a good fit. And the third one, it appeared to me, was going to make it very, very difficult. And so I actually said, I really don't know if this is the process that's going to work for you. Um, It can be that we get into mediation and people are very polarized and then they uh, sort of find that it isn't as bad as it seems, you know, and I find ways to find commonality and consensus and start building those bridges back up. So um, the mediator has a lot to do with, I think, how it goes. Once you um, start looking, though, there are many resources out there. And sometimes I feel it's by word of mouth that you get your best um, information and education about it. It's not much different than picking anybody, whether it's a doctor, a plumber, you know, you start talking to your friends and hope that somebody has some experience or background that might assist you in making that decision. You might look at a website, I have a website, I tried to sort of capsulize in a few sentences, the type of um, work I've done and the type of work I do, and what my personality traits are. So it's, it's a, you do have a lot of choices out there. Some are required by the court, and they are court annexed, and they are part of your uh, fee that you pay when you go and file for a dissolution of your marriage or a custody case. So that might dictate how you approach it if you start with them. They will give you um, a couple of very short sessions, and they don't always deal with alimony or spousal support and some of the financial issues. They're not usually uh, trained as lawyers or trained as mediators. So you might do a hybrid and do a few different things and then, you know, settle. You might find one mediator isn't working for you and you switch and go to another one. It's very individualized. So before a mediation, let's say someone says they decide to want to use you and they contact you. Do you have a process or some paperwork or do you send them something? How do you, how does the ball sort of get rolling? Normally it would be by email. I'm contacted. Sometimes it's by phone through my website. I have a process that people can um, actually send me a request. And then I usually want more information. Uh, So somewhere or or another, I'm working with a a couple right now who um, really don't have attorneys. Um, I've encouraged them to have an attorney sort of as an advisor, but I'm going to work with them. And they both seem to have the kind of uh, attitudes and personality where I thought that I could probably benefit them. 
but we, it took a little bit of time talking to both of them. And I spent that time just to sort of make sure that I was going to be a good fit. Once they said, we want you to mediate, then I am happy to give them available dates. Those are available on my website. Not every mediator has a website, but available dates to make sure that we're going to be able to do it within the time frame that they want to get it done. Some people require a great deal of flexibility because of childcare or whatever. So we arrive on a date. Then I send out a very formal agreement. It isn't long, but it just says, you know, I'm your mediator. This is the date it's happening. This is what we're mediating. And I go through and uh, talk about confidentiality, what I charge per hour, and I make it a, a legally binding contract so that they get to uh, take advantage of the confidentiality portions, which I think are important to most people. And they understand, you know, what I'm, um, what the parameters are. I'm not going to give them legal advice, for instance. Um, I then have them sign it at some point before we start the mediation and we uh, go from there. I typically will schedule a half day at um, least for it. I don't mind if we have more than one session, but uh, the typical first session, I might listen to somebody for an hour or more just talking. And it's a process that I can get into more detail about as we go along this podcast, but it is a very essential one because I'm connecting with that person. I'm identifying their goals and I'm finding out sort of where the obstacles are. Um, Prior to getting there, I actually asked people to send me a proposal that they would like me to start with. And so before I even start the mediation session itself, I'm reviewing their paperwork. It might be legal papers. It might be financial information. It might be an evaluation about uh, what's in the best interest of their children that was done by another professional, all kinds of information. But it gives me an opportunity then to sort of hone in and focus on goals and where the obstacles are. So when you're sending them stuff, now they're ready to send you stuff. Any suggestions on on how they can prepare the documents that you want, find the stuff you want to help mine on figuring out what's best to send you? So the vast majority of mediations I do in family law are uh, with lawyers. And so we speak the same language. And so I can use acronyms and things and tell them to send me USDs, which is a, a uniform support declaration, a budget. I need to have that financial information. I ask them to send me a rule 8.010, which is actually some sort of a spreadsheet with a proposal to divide up their assets and liabilities. These are things that people who are trained as lawyers in this area know exactly what I'm talking about. So when I'm, for instance, working with this family, as I am starting now, we talked about it on the phone. I sent them an email. I told them what was important to me. And then when I get their submissions a day or two ahead of time before the mediation, I even have to go back with lawyers and say, oh, could you also send me this? Do you have that? It would be really helpful if I had some more information on a particular thing. And part of it has to do with being prepared um, in the manner that I, I was talking about, but even more so to get a value of your home. If you're, one party wants to keep the home and the other one wants to be bought out, so to speak, 
you got to arrive on a, an agreed upon value. You may not agree upon it in its entirety before we start the mediation. With success, we, we find that somehow it gets agreed upon and, and that becomes a very pivotal thing because that's usually the biggest asset people have. The retirement account that people have. Sometimes they are in sort of a format that I need to or a lawyer needs to look at to see if there's a taxable problem if you just cashed it in. And depending upon your age, are there penalties? If you're transferring it to your other spouse, it's usually without tax matters. But at the same time, uh, if that person who receives it cashes it in, they may pay tax on the gain. So those are things that I might be identifying and saying, okay, I need a little bit more information or you need to go to your pension person and have them send this. Maybe you get quarterly statements and I want something that is really current because that's what you want when you're dividing up this asset. So I, I find that the more you've done your homework, appraising things, sometimes just getting a Kelly Blue Book is satisfactory to both sides for a car or a other type of vehicle. You may have a boat. One person always says the one who wants to keep the boat, that boat's worth 5,000. The other one's like, no, we paid 50. And I think it's worth 55 because we put new sales on whatever it is. I'm not there to call the evaluation of that asset, the value of it. I'm there to get you two to agree upon it. And then from there, we work our way towards what's a fair division of it. Maybe it's being sold. If it's being sold, I don't care what the value is because whoever buys it will establish a value. So it seems to me then like the more information you have on everything, the more able you are to help them come to a resolution on you know, what, to, what the value and what to do with it. So we've got all of those various issues, and those are helpful. Sometimes people will start the mediation saying, I want to keep the house. And by the time we get through the whole financial picture, and that's why I say I need a budget. I need to know what your income is. I prefer to have uh, very recent paychecks and pay stubs. People don't always even know how to read their own tax returns. So give me a tax return. Those are the things as a judge I, I absolutely require. But I can't do my job in terms of trying to deal with these things if we always have to be calling an accountant right in the middle of the mediation, and maybe that accountant isn't even available. Um, You know, there's a lot of times where we can get really to a point of of not being able to move forward. The um, issues surrounding children are very different than the issues surrounding money. They may dovetail in a variety of ways, and of course, there's support issues that certainly bear on Um, somebody's ability to provide a home and what have you. So we, we do cover all those issues. But before the mediation, I would like to know, where do you stand on this? Are you asking for sole custody, joint custody? Are you okay with the other side having sole custody? Are you doing a hybrid of that where one person is the primary residential parent and gets to maybe ultimately make a decision if there's a a disagreement that can't be resolved between you. We go through all of those things. I just want to know a starting point. And that way I can be much more efficient. And like I said, I can start to problem solve even before we start the mediation session. My brain kind of kicks in and I start 
thinking, okay, this is going to be hard. This is going to be easy. Oh, we've got agreement here. So we try to find all the areas of agreement, get those nailed down, and then start tackling the other ones. And sometimes they're so intertwined that we have to say, well, if this comes together, then, then the custody part will work or vice versa. So this works best when you have the information even before the mediation starts. It seems like if they were to bring all that stuff in at the mediation, this would turn a half-day mediation into a you know two-day mediation. It's almost like when I was on the bench going to court, I would have attorneys show up with, um, or sometimes people didn't have attorneys without the right information. I didn't mind. I could go recess into my chambers and do some other work. But if we only had a half day scheduled and I had to send them out in the hallway to do a budget or to run home to get their tax returns, I'm not really making good use of their time. I could always, you know, probably find something uh, better to do if I was at the courthouse. But here I'm on the clock and I'm even when I'm doing judicial settlement conferences uh, for the courts where I'm being um, uh, not paid by the parties themselves. It makes it a lot easier and more efficient if, um, and that's why I try to start, I mean, I might even be emailing a lawyer at seven in the morning when we have a nine o'clock mediation saying, by the way, I didn't get this. Do you have this? And typically people are so electronically, digitally um, operating that I can get things pretty quickly. And most people have online banking. And so it's a lot easier now because, you know, sometimes we can look up a particular thing or call somebody, but I'd like to have it ahead of time. It, it saves time and it, it really um, just, it gets us, you know, sort of moving forward in the right yeah. direction. It saves time and it saves money both for the client. Time is money. Time is money. So you, you had talked a little bit about the information you received and the confidentiality of that. And that kind of leads to, so mediations aren't public. Stuff that happens in them doesn't, you know, have to get out like in a trial necessarily. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And I think you'll find most people have a sense of their privacy being very, very important to them. And I, you know, I only had a few experiences back in the day when I was a a lawyer where my client would be listening to the case ahead of them. We had, you know, maybe three cases on the docket and ours was number two or three. And they would hear these people sort of, you know, talking about disagreements and sometimes, you know, really airing their dirty laundry, so to speak. (laughs) That's not a fun place to be. And so if we do it in mediation, what I do is I don't have both parties in the same room. If we're doing it on a Zoom, they leave the meeting and wait in a room. And then I work and I can get, I can be a little bit nosy and say, yeah, tell me about this or tell me about that. It might be that they've embezzled some money or gambled or did something that they're not very proud of. And I'm, you know, able to, after I establish a rapport to say, I really need to talk to you about this because this is something that may come up if you go to court. I don't want them to ever fear going to court or say, geez, I can't, you know, have that made public, but it's not my choice whether it's made public. It's sort of um, the parties, if they 
can resolve things. And sometimes it affects their employment. I mean, it can, there could be a, a number of things that people just don't want to share. There are most people, though, that just simply want to have a, a private session and be able to just, I mean, I would never have the opportunity as a judge to get to know people the way I do. And it's partially because I ask questions. You know, I'll say, well, are there other children? This attorney one time said to me, my client has one child. Well, he had been actually in prison. He had been using methamphetamine when he was young. And I said to him, how many children do you have? And he said, three. And his attorney said, one. And I said, okay. And the attorney was very young and said to me afterwards, judge, how did you know he had three kids? I said, because he was using meth in his 20s. And, you know, I told you I have a criminal law background. It's just kind of like, we know a lot more than we have to divulge. But I didn't ask him that to embarrass him about these other kids. I asked him because I wanted to know what his um, relationship was with those children and how supportive that mother was of him. Because it sort of helps me understand how he's going to operate in the future with this particular mother. And it was a very contentious case. And there were some other issues that sort of involved that. So I don't go any further than I have to. But if I ask something, it's usually for a very good reason. Your job then, it seems, is not, like you said, not to to judiciate the facts, but to get them to come to agreements. And and that's his, your the focus is that more than on a trial necessarily, but let's say you do get an agreement. So is that mediation agreement legally binding? It is. It becomes a contract, and the court. Uh, we have a law in Oregon that respects the fact that people can make better agreements than the judges can make decisions on. If it bears on the children's support or well-being, you know, we have the right to chime in as a judge. But our statute actually encourages people to agree on matters and then requires the court, we call it ratifying it. So if they come to an agreement in mediation and they don't have an attorney, we will do some sort of a bullet point thing. But I require that either it's recorded, such as with the Zoom process, you have the ability to record people. And I go through it just like I would if I was talking to people in a courtroom and getting an agreement on the record. So I asked them, have you thought about all this? Do you want to take some time and talk to an attorney? If they have um, attorneys already on board and the attorneys are there, the attorneys know full well that it's going to be binding. So we go through, we try to get it down as far as we can to the last detail. And I say that because the devil is in the details. And so the wording of a a particular um, agreement can not necessarily address every little detail. So we try to make it detailed. Sometimes we have to follow up with another session to get that last little bit done. But the principal things, you know, who's going to get custody, who's keeping the house, the house will be sold, which realtor will list it, how will they determine the value? You know, those things, we can get all of that in place. And if there's homework to be done, we can even put that in. As soon as this gets done, this will get done. And we wrap it up. And I said I'm goal-oriented, and that means, you know, basically I want to get a full settlement. If we have to come back another day, we can do that. But as much as we can nail down, I think it's in everybody's best interest to document it, get them to assent, and make it binding. 
So if you had some advice to give to someone in terms of trying to reach this agreement, I mean, what are, what are some of the pieces of advice you would give in terms of their attitude kind of coming into now they're sitting down and having the actual mediation meeting? Well, there is a process that goes on in negotiating in any context. In family law, there's many moving parts. So if you can focus on your primary goal, and somebody might say, my primary goal is to get custody of my child. That's the most important thing to me. And because I think the other parent's going to move away or, you know, there's some good reason for it. I, I look at that as being the most important thing in that corner. The other parent might say, I could give up custody, but I really want to have a lot of time. And, you know, so everybody's got to be prepared, though, for give and take. It's a compromise. And when one of the sayings the judges have is my decision, if it makes both parties equally unhappy, I've done my job. That sounds bad. We should be saying if we are both equally happy, but you're never going to get, rarely will you ever get everything you want. There's just, it's just not uh, probably going to happen. So you got to be prepared. And, you know, we use all kinds of expressions like throw the other side a bone. I try to have some throwaway things that I say, well, you could give up that tea kettle over there because it's not the end of the world if you have to go buy another one. People do argue over odd things, you know, their washing machines and refrigerators and things that, you know, you could buy another one. So we try to, you know, get, okay, if that person really, really wants that, then give them that. And then you get this. And we just try to find the areas where both parties have given up maybe equally, but if you're not prepared to meet somebody halfway, I would say you're, you probably shouldn't be mediating. You should probably go have a judge decide. And I guarantee you the judge will never be able to do as good a decision as you and your partner or spouse could do together. We never could know you as well. We couldn't know your family as well. And, you know, there are just certain things that need to come together. So how do you deal with people's emotions? You're in the middle of this this mediation meeting, and if you know it's obviously going to be emotional in, in some areas. What do you do? Well, I don't take things personally, first off. And I was on the bench for over 20 years, and I still continue to be there. And so you got to have a little bit of a thick skin if you're a judge, a lawyer, um, you know, a mediator. There comes a point, though, of respect. And it's respecting the process, respecting the person, and, you know, feeling safe sometimes, or the other side might not feel safe. So I will try to keep the emotions down. I have a little sticker I got at a restaurant in Hawaii that says, practice aloha. I used to take them out in the courtroom and I'd say, let's all breathe. You know, let's try to get the emotions down. So I let people vent a bit. If it's a constructive sort of venting, there will be tears. There will be anger. There will be all, you know, it's like a a mini drama sort of unfolding. But you got to get to a point where you're using your brain and sort of being rational. So if you're not at a point where you can analyze these things, you might need a little bit of time, maybe some therapeutic help, or just some um, ability to find another place to get that that poison out. 
most of the time I'm dealing with pretty nice people and I will hear stories, you know, oh, that person was really rude to me. The lawyer on the other side will say, I'd say, well, that person was very kind and, and, uh, you know, very well behaved. And so I think people react differently sometimes. And sometimes the attorneys start sniping and I have, you know, I've told them, you know, your clients couldn't settle this without you and you couldn't do it without me. So go to your corners and let me do my thing. And, you know, they're usually very nice lawyers. They're great lawyers, but just sometimes, you know, they get under each other's skin a little. So how, just if you had to, you know, give a guesstimate, and you probably know more, more than a guesstimate, how often can you settle the whole thing? I mean, is, are you able uh, fairly often to actually resolve it to the point where they can go sign it and take it to the court and have a final judgment? I would say over 90% of the time. Wow. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Sometimes they'll hold off on making a decision on um, support, let's say, or they want to verify somebody's income or bonus or something like that. They may go to their respective corners. And then I hear within, you know, sometimes a week or two, or I get the PS, they settled everything. I've reported to the court that a case is settled and it comes unraveling. And then I've kind of given them a little talking to, and then they get back on board. So I would say, you know, it's probably well over 90%. You get you get 90% of these cases settled and start to finish from the time someone contacts you to the time they sign an agree, a mediation agreement. What's a ballpark estimate of that? Well, let's assume they book the mediation within a month. They're going to be done probably within two months at the most. And the last, after we have our session, there may be some tail end things. There may be paperwork to be done. These things have to be formalized and they have to be put into the form of a judgment. And that has to be done in a way. So I don't usually do that work. I send it off, you know, for them to get an attorney to do it or use self-help forms. But those that's one timeline. The actual time I spend in mediation I have probably spent as little as uh, three hours and gotten a decision on a particular issue. And I've spent probably 16, 18, 24 hours in various chunks. We do a big chunk and then we do smaller. You know, it it really varies. I would say the average one, though, is running about uh, maybe eight hours. And we've gone till eight o'clock at night. I go through the noon hour. I mean, it's once you kind of get the momentum going, you don't want to quit sometimes. Yeah. So that makes sense. And compared to the months and months, and especially now, you know, potentially oh, yeah. years that it may take to resolve a court trial, family law case, that's a that's a tremendous help in getting these issues resolved and getting these families moved on and to the places they want to be. Right. I do want to emphasize, though, it really helps to have an attorney, whether that attorney is in the mediation with you or in the background where you can call the person up and say, is this a good deal or not? I I am hesitant to weigh in and tell somebody, yes, you ought to do this, even if I know it's the right thing to do, because I don't want to be um, in a position of giving legal advice or influencing their decision making. So having an attorney, I think at least in the very beginning to get some basic understanding of what you're doing and at the tail end to make sure this is the right decision. Wow. Well, gosh, this was wonderful. It's time for us to sort of wrap up, but thank you very much, Judge Miller. This was just a tremendous 
lesson in how to do a mediation and what the benefits can be. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about something I love doing and something that I'm a true believer is the, um, I think you, you know, everybody could benefit from at least trying mediation. And if you don't resolve everything, sometimes people walk away saying, you know, I'm much better now than I was, this got clarified. So um, I do, um, I really do believe in it. And thank you for giving me this um, chance to talk about it. Well, this is wonderful. Well, maybe we'll talk again. I know you also do reference judging, and maybe we'll talk again about that one day. Yes, that is a a small part of what I do, but it is an important part. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for Modern Family Matters. Again, I'm Steve Altitian with Lander Home Family Law. Hope you enjoyed today's session and continue to listen to our podcast. And again, thank you. Goodbye and have a good day. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Modern Family Matters, a legal podcast focusing on providing real answers and direction for individuals and families as they navigate the growth, changes, and challenges of creating their new family dynamics. Modern Family Matters is sponsored by Landerholm Family Law, serving Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, and devoted to providing clients with compassionate and fierce legal advocacy with a firm belief in the importance of upholding the family unit amidst complex transitions. If you are in need of legal counsel or have additional questions about a family law matter important to you, you can visit our Landerholm Family Law website at www.landerholmlaw.com or call us at 503-227-227. 0200 to schedule a case evaluation with one of our seasoned attorneys. Modern Family Matters, advocating for your better tomorrow and offering solutions on legal matters important to the modern family.